Welcome to episode 159, Addressing Disordered Eating in Teens When You're Not a Specialist, Understanding the Process, featuring Tracy Canella, Licensed Mental Health Counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am honored to be joined by Tracy Canella. She is a licensed mental health counselor in Olympia, Washington, and she's also a certified eating disorders specialist supervisor. Uh, eating disorders are really her jam, and I'm really happy to have her here today to shed some light on a topic that for many of us is very intimidating, which is working with eating disorders and specifically working with adolescents with eating disorders. Um, so thank you, Tracy, for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. So why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to have this particular specialization, and then we will dive into a very complex and important topic. Yeah. So like you said, I'm a licensed mental health counselor in Olympia, Washington. I have a private practice and I treat probably about a third of my clients are struggling with some sort of food or body image eating issue. And I do treat quite a few teen clients. And so I've gotten into this specialty area because there's a huge need in this community. And uh, I actually struggled with an eating disorder when I was a teenager and always thought I could never treat this population because I've struggled with it and people wouldn't really like that. But it's actually the opposite. The valuable information that I had gotten by struggling with an eating disorder was indeed valuable in treating eating disorders too. Uh, with the encouragement of some of the other people in the field in Olympia, I was able to start helping at a free support group for eating disorders at the hospital. And then I was, when I developed my private practice, I decided to specialize in eating disorders. It took quite a long time, a lot of extra training, but it was really, really worth it because working with this population has been so rewarding. And uh, so I am doing that now. Now, I'm also uh, hosting a podcast of my own called Calming the Chaos, and that does deal with some kind of overwhelm that relates to food, body image, and eating issues. And I'm just really enjoying being in private practice and, and helping out where I can in the community. What I'd really like to be able to do is see more clinicians specialize in this area. And so I became a supervisor for that purpose, just to try and encourage clinicians to work with eating disorders. Thank you, Tracy. Um, as you and I had talked before we started recording, I think clinicians in general probably have a passing awareness that eating disorders have a very high risk that come along with them. And for that reason, I think people are really intimidated. So I'm glad to have you here to speak to that. Um, because I've seen on social media, you have somebody ask a question about eating disordered behavior, and someone will jump on it and say need to refer to a specialist. And right now, as we're recording this, we're in February of 2022. And we are in a complete mental health crisis where there's a lack of providers, just complete overwhelm. Every private practitioner I know is full. Every agency I know is full. And we're in an environment where what if we can't get to a specialist right now if we can't send a client there? And how do we ethically treat that person without abandoning them? Um, what if we have a lot of water under the bridge? So I'm glad to have this conversation because I think it's this really critical piece that really really scares a lot of us. So, oh, yeah. so let's, let's start kind of by talking about just a really quick and dirty, if you will, on eating disorders in general, just as a eating disorder 101 very quickly, and then we'll dive into this and how it presents in teens and with families and, and we'll go from there. Yeah, so I will refer to the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, which I continue to call it DSM-4-TR, but it is the DSM-5 now. It did change quite a bit in regard to eating disorders. So the uh, typical diagnoses that you will see in kids and 
in some adults as well. Well, you'll see um, pica and rumination disorder. Those are the ones that where you have, uh, you know, eating non-food-like substances in pica and then in rumination, then there's going to be a regurgitation. And um, pardon me if this gets kind of gross, but that's what you do. You, you talk about food and you talk about different behaviors. And so these ones are for childhood diagnosis only. When we get into anorexia and bulimia and binge eating disorders, which are the three main ones you see in the DSM-5, anorexia, of course, characterized by a low weight and fear of gaining weight and a lack of awareness that the weight loss or the low weight is a problem. Uh, there's a lot of body image and emotional things that go into anorexia. And so uh, anorexia, bulimia being there's binge eating and some sort of undoing or compensatory behavior, such as vomiting, using using laxatives or over-exercising or fasting to compensate for any food intake. Now, this is not characterized by low body weight, typically, or it can be, uh, but if it falls within a certain threshold, then it would uh, likely be in the anorexia category of the binging, purging category and not restricting category of anorexia. And now they have a binge eating disorder and binge eating disorder being in the DSM-5 and as a real disorder. And so now we're talking about uh, these binges that occur when you are eating at a fast pace, when you are already full, when you're not hungry, when you're alone, and always characterized by the sense of shame afterwards. And there's marked distress in these individuals who are uh, eating more than usual. Another change in the DSM-5 uh, happened with the otherwise specified feeding or eating disorders, which is OSFED for short. And there are five categories in here that don't fall into the typical anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating uh, disorders. So there's atypical anorexia where there's a lot of weight lost, uh, but not necessarily falling in that low weight threshold. So there's, there's that one. There's also bulimia nervosa of low frequency or duration. So not the undoing, uh, behaviors are happening at a lower rate. And then there's uh, also a binge eating disorder of low frequency as well. So all the criteria are met, but they're happening at a lower frequency. And a purging disorder as well, just recurrent purging behavior to influence your weight, size, or shape. So self-induced vomiting, so that it's just happening. And then the last category is night eating syndrome, where uh, the people are not even aware that they're eating. Uh, they, they're getting up out of their sleep and they're eating and they're finding evidence of eating in the morning. So that was a quick and dirty overview. Hope it was quick enough for you. But there are a lot of categories in the DSM-5 for eating disorders. Thank you. That was a, that was a great overview. Um, I think from a diagnostic perspective, and number one, understanding that we're talking about the DSM-5 and that there are changes that may be coming in DSM-6 and also the uh, consideration of how all of these different intersectional factors may be contributing to diagnosis. So I have that asterisk for our listeners. There's that consideration as well of like, what are we talking about within um, the queer community, for example, where eating disorders are very common. Um, but before, well, without going on to that tangent, I think one of the difficulties for clinicians is being able to say what is effectively normal, quote unquote, normative, and when does something become quote unquote, pathological. For you as a specialist, where do you see that line getting crossed where it goes from, okay, you have a concern about your body or, or um, a preoccupation with food to, okay, we're into full-blown uh, eating disorder territory now? 
Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because a couple of years ago, I wrote a book chapter in this book, Adolescent Nutrition, Assuring the Needs of Emerging Adults. If you have a chance to pick that up, it's kind of spendy, but it's a really good resource for this. I put in the continuum or the spectrum of disordered eating behavior. So it was actually a graphic that myself and my colleague, uh, Stacy Schulter Paisano, we both developed ourselves. Now, a spectrum has been, uh, people have developed spectrums in the past, but the one that we developed was pretty unique because it went from uh, normal eating, which is kind of like really young kids eat, you know, eating when you're hungry, eating what you want, stopping when you're full, no real emotion around food, normal, quote, normal eating. And, uh, and also normal eating can uh, consist of, I am going to have that extra cookie, even though I am full because it tastes good right now and it's right out of the oven. So that is all considered in the normal eating. And then as you go up the spectrum, you have concerned well. And we find that there are quite a few people that come in that are concerned about their body weight size, shape, their eating habits, but they're not in distress about it. They're, they're well. They are just mindful of their eating and or uh, their consumption of food and mindful of their body weight, but they're not in a whole lot of distress. And as you move up on the spectrum, you start to see more attention paid to behaviors and or restricting or the, the food thoughts are more uh, pervasive. They, they happen at a faster rate or they consume more of your time until you go to the disordered eating uh, uh, part of the spectrum where it pretty much consumes your whole life. It's, it's interesting that the eating disorder uh, starts out as possibly being concerned well, but things might happen in your life that are stressors that can cause it to consume you. Isn't that interesting? It's an interesting metaphor to use for it. Mm -hmm. So that's how I see it on a spectrum. And so if a person presents with some concerns about their, their body or eating, or if a parent comes in with their teen kid and they're saying, hey, look, my, my teenager, uh, she's been on a diet, uh, she's been losing some weight, I'm concerned, we would want to talk about the frequency with which her thoughts are happening, how uh, distracted she is, how they affect her major life domains too. And so the major life domains being the physical aspect Aspects, if she's having any health problems, any kind of thinking thought problems, she doing worse in school than she usually does? Is she isolating? So that's that social domain. And then um, also any kind of emotional outbursts or emotional flatness, we'll look at that. And how is she doing in her relationships? We will look at those and how uh, profoundly they're being affected by these changes in behavior. And that's when we would get more, a little bit more concerned is if they're happening more frequently, if they're more intense, for example, bulimia, if there's undoing behaviors one or two times a week uh, versus uh, 10 to 24 times a week, then we would be a little bit more concerned about it being an eating disorder. Uh, so that is just sort of an overview of what to look for if a person presents with an eating concern or if they just mention uh, their eating habits in session and they're not even there to see you for an eating disorder, but they mention that they've been on a diet and they've been losing a lot of weight or they've been eating at night or they've been finding crumbs on the counter, whatever it is. Um, make sure you ask about the major life domains and how they're being affected. Is their health being affected? Is their thinking being affected? The relationships, job, school, emotions. Uh, that's what you would want to look for first. Thank you. And when we're assessing for these things, I'm curious, what I find is that when someone has a specialization, we really hone in on this stuff during our assessment because we know to look out for. You know, I've I've talked to people who are 
experts in traumatic brain injury. And so they're all over asking about concussions, whereas other therapists might just not even think about it. What are the questions that you as a specialist make sure to ask in your assessment with a teen or with a family, um, just so you have some knowledge of this, even if they didn't come in specifically around something involving eating? Yeah, I, I usually, well, the first thing I do is when a person comes in, whether it be a teen, a family, a couple, or an individual adult, I will do a genogram. And the genogram being that family map, that history, and uh, that just that the whole picture of the family is right there in front of you. I'm sure being a family therapist, you know what I mean, right? So, so yeah, it, it's, and that can be really telling because you're going to see the relationships between the uh, parents and the kids and the parents and the parents and everything else. You're going to also be noting uh, what their uh, attitudes are, what the parents' attitudes are toward food and eating, or just life in general, any kind of emotional conflict, but you're going to see that distress in that genogram. And so I will automatically just start on in um, with getting to know the client, getting to know the, uh, the family history, and then I'll ask about any concerning behaviors that they have. Uh, behaviors always, in my mind, they will come before emotions because people aren't really concerned about the emotions, which is funny because they should be. Uh, but they'll be very concerned, like, I want to stop doing this. And so what is it that you are seeing that you want to change? And I'll put that on the treatment plan. And we'll get into, okay, so you want to stop binging. That's a very common one. And I will ask, what do you think a binge is? And they will tell me what they think a binge is. Now, it may not meet the criteria that's in the DSM, but they will think that it is a binge and we'll talk about whether it is or not. And uh, what we'll do is we'll assess, is this a binge or not? Is this concerning? How distressing is this to you when this behavior happens? What kind of emotions? This is when we get into the emotions because they're kind of ready for it then. Um, what kind of emotions are you feeling? And all therapy therapists have been trained to do that. That's why we're here, right? We're here to treat emotional distress. And it's no different when there are eating behaviors involved uh, than there are when there's just your classic anxiety or depression. You are treating these emotions. It's just that the behaviors, yes, they can be life-threatening. Yes, they can be concerning. Uh, and yet they do have their roots in emotions. So go from the family to the behaviors to the emotions and the emotional distress. How distressed are you? Scale of zero to 10, zero meaning no distress at all, 10 meaning really, really bad distress. And I'll put that on there uh, as well. So the level of distress, if it's really high and the behaviors are high, uh, then that's the time where we start to talk about possibly going to a higher level of care than just an outpatient therapist uh, such as myself. Okay. Thank you. Um, will you take a minute and talk about comorbidity? Um, I know for a while in the eating disorder world, we were seeing the, the pressure or the focus on genetics, and then there have been adoption studies uh, that have not disproven, but have added some additional clarification to how this happens in families. Will you speak to some of that um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with that research? A comorbidity being a an eating disorder with a uh, with another disorder such as bipolar disorder or borderline personality disorder is that what you're talking about? Exactly, and also just contributing factors of what are risk factors. So knowing even if a child, for example, um, is with their non biological parent, that there could be uh, patterns within that parent that could be handed down to the adoptive child. And I, I've seen that in the research, I've seen that in practice, but so considerations, because I think for us, uh, for those of us who are not specialists to understand, here are some of these contributing factors that we need to keep in mind, that if, you know, are people with eating disorders more likely to have depression or anxiety or bipolar disorders, uh, psychosis, what are the comorbid considerations? What makes a, someone particularly high risk? Uh, got it. Okay. Yeah. So if you're a, a clinician just in private practice or in a, an agency or some other place, and you see th this is almost classically 100%, you could probably guarantee um, is correlated with disordered eating is low self-esteem. 
So low self-esteem being present in your client, you would maybe want to ask how they feel about their bodies, how they feel about their weight, or how they're eating, how they're caring for themselves. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's really super high correlation of low self-esteem to disordered eating, which means that in disordered eating, we find that there's almost always low self-esteem. So if you see that showing up in your office, then that might be room, there might be some room for some questions uh, about eating. And anxiety and depression, of course, those two are very, very common. Mixed anxiety and depression, because they go hand in hand, uh, do show up quite a bit. Uh, and because family concerns, a divorce or uh, lots of moves, uh, losing friends, grief, loss, all that stuff can be coped with using food and eating. And that might sound strange, but it, it actually is um, very common for people to go to food when their environment is not stable. Because guess what? You know, a food is going to be what it is. You know what to expect. It's, it's pretty much an Oreo cookie is an Oreo cookie. It's going to taste like an Oreo cookie. But your family may be shapeshifters. <laughs> they may be doing all kinds of weird stuff uh, all the time, uh, unpredictable, chaotic. And so you go to the food for the grounding and the stability. So I'd say almost everything you, you would want to be able to almost check in with the life domains uh, and see uh, how, how people's distress is affecting their their major life domains and see if eating is being used to stabilize any of that. Okay, thank you. And how about the medical component knowing that our appetite is something that is managed not so much by the frontal lobe but <laughs> by our limbic system and telling us to eat or not eat and telling us what to eat. How do you address that when you're not a medical professional? Yeah, yeah. Well, I actually have had some training as part of my specialization through the International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals. We do have one of our core courses is on medical, and we are not specialists, and we make that very clear in medical. Uh, so what, what typically we do is we ask, when was your last doctor's visit? Uh, have you seen the doctor about this? What does the doctor recommend? And uh, also, we will say, what is their, their treatment plan for you? Uh, when did you last get lab tests done? So we'll, we'll ask those medical questions. And if, they're, if they haven't seen the doctor, then we definitely want to recommend that they go and see a doctor uh, uh, preferably a doctor who is eating disorder informed, because we do have a lot of medical staff out there who just, they don't know uh, what kind of things to do, what kind of questions to ask, to do uh, what, what they call an orthostatic blood pressure, which is you take the blood pressure laying down and sitting. So it's a, a separate blood pressure for laying down, a separate one for sitting, and then a, a separate one for standing. So there's three blood pressures that they take. And if there's a significant variance of uh, 10 to 20 points on either the uh, systolic, which is the top number, or the diastolic, which is the bottom number, then what it means is the patient is orthostatic and could, you know, the variance of the blood pressure from, from laying, sitting and standing is so great that the, um, that the client is uh, possibly at risk for, um, you know, passing out, feeling uh, dizzy, uh, injuring themselves, or even a heart attack. Uh, so, so we know this as eating disorder professionals. The the per, the people, the clinicians in typical offices who aren't specialists may not know this, uh, but it's. I thought it was a good thing to put in here because um, I don't want people to be scared that this could happen. But I also want to know, I want clinicians to know that asking questions about their medical treatment uh, in a gentle and a, a kind, non-intrusive way um, is something that we do um, just to see that the, the client is, is safe and is under some kind of medical care. I think that's good for for anybody, uh, even somebody who's just struggling with the run-of-the-mill anxiety and depression. Thank you. I appreciate that um, because 
I know I've seen how medications affect appetite. I've absolutely uh, seen where changing a medication can suddenly re-trigger eating disordered behavior. Um, or um, I've seen uh, nutrient deficiencies, different autoimmune disorders. So thank you for addressing that point, because I think particularly with the eating disorder piece, there's so much overlap with medical and wanting to make sure that we are keeping those doors open um, with primary care, whoever it is, to know what's going on there. Right. Get a release. Get a release of information. And hopefully the doctor will want to talk to you. I know they're really busy right now, too. Uh, if you write them a letter or if you ask for a short meeting uh, and some some do email, but uh, definitely get that release uh, and or ask ask for a release, I should say. So ask for a release from your client, uh, and in the in the uh, spirit of trying to keep them well and us to be on the same page with their medical provider. Thank you. So when we're talking about the presentation of eating disorders in the therapy room, tell me what that looks like, um, and what you're really listening for, whether that's with the teen themselves or with a parent or a caregiver. Yeah. So, uh, in, and there's never, I want to emphasize this, there is never one way that a person will come down with an eating disorder. There's never just one factor and no presentation is ever the same and no treatment or recovery is ever the same. And the other point I want to make uh, is that, uh, that no parent wants their kid to get an eating disorder. And I don't think that any kid really wants an eating disorder. Some might say they do, uh, but once they're in it, it's really a struggle. So with, with that being said, in all kinds of, of different ways uh, they will present, you'll get the, uh, the kiddo who comes in and just uh, word vomits all over the place, right? Just tells you everything, no holds back. And then you'll have the kid where is just really very secretive and not wanting to say anything. So there's again, and, and all the points in between those two extremes, right? So you have what they say and uh, how, how open they are about it. And then you'll have those who have a lot of, of shame and, and guilt. You, you'll have some people who are showing signs of trauma or shock, uh, which they'll you you can see that they're just not there; they're freezing, uh, and you can sense the energy going out of their bodies. And others who are extremely like I had a, a client one time was um, almost like making these uh, motions with her feet to run toward the door. So you do want to look at at the body language. Do you even want to be here right now? Right. Uh, so it'll show up like that. You have people who are really, really willing to do anything if it means, you know, standing on your head on a table and singing a song, or these people who are really unwilling to do anything at all. Like, I don't want to shift out of this. In fact, I'm only here because mom and dad think that it's going to help. And so all of that stuff can present. So their behaviors, their mannerisms, whether or not they're going into shock, what they say, how much they say, um, it is really, it's very, very different uh, from client to client. The way that you talk about this, I think I already know the answer to this question. You are not one to classify somebody as quote unquote bulimic or anorexic. You are one to say that someone has come down with or is experiencing an eating disorder. Is that right? Uh, disordered eating behaviors is uh, one of my favorite terms because, so think of it this way. So the eating disorders are in the DSM-5 and disordered eating behaviors are anything that can happen that causes distress. And this is why you're here. An individual who struggles with uh, binging and purging, yeah, they may be classified as uh, bulimic, but yeah, I don't refer to them as their disorder. And uh, I have to be kind of careful with that because I, I was, uh, as a teen, 
uh, I had anorexia nervosa. And so it's hard, uh, it's hard because I used to say, oh, I was anorexic for years. So it's been hard for me to get out of the habit because I, for so long I had referred to myself as anorexic and I, I need to get out of the habit of saying that and because uh, I was never my disorder and am not today either. So I, I think that there's just a lot of different, different presentations, uh, a lot of different uh, emotions that are involved that, that show up and um, they're all very, very treatable by the, the typical clinician. <laughs> so uh, they really are. I just want to make sure that people understand that there's really no need to be afraid, especially if you're an outpatient treatment therapist, because you'll want to get a treatment team together that includes a medical provider and a dietitian, typically, and sometimes a psychiatrist. So you're not going to be alone uh, treating these individuals if they do uh, come into your office. There's people like myself. There are treatment centers who offer free consultations. Uh, they, I know of two of them that meet uh, every, uh, well, on Fridays. One's the first Friday of the month. One's the second Friday of the month where you can go in and you can just, you don't have to have a case to present. You can just listen and learn. So there's all kinds of resources out there for you. And uh, I am sure that uh, hopefully somebody will get excited about treating eating disorders uh, by listening to this podcast today. Thank you again for for sharing all of this with us because it's so much information. So to recap some of what you've said, there's that spectrum going from normal to quote unquote eating disorder. And then in there is disordered eating behaviors. And I think just like the DSM, like all of us have heard our name being called when it hasn't actually been called or we hear our phone ringing. It's not because we have a psychotic disorder. I mean, we may, but I, I bring that up because I think it's helpful to remember that the DSM is effectively shades of normal. And then it's when something crosses into that that nebulous category of pathological, quote unquote, where you had said it really is affecting many domains of functioning and evaluating how it's affecting their relationships and their thinking and their health, all of those considerations. So when you are working with a teen and or family, and you suspect that the teen has disordered eating behaviors, I'm curious, how do you bring that up? How do you talk about that and present that? Because as you said, no parent wants to hear that their child has an eating disorder. It's, it's a very scary thing. Yeah, usually the parents will contact me first. And the reason I'm seeing the teen is because the parents are concerned about the teen's eating behaviors. I'm trying to think of a time where I was working with a teen and then eating problems showed up. I think maybe because I'm a specialist, that doesn't happen. Uh, but I'm trying to put myself in an imaginary situation where I'm with a teen who does not have an eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors when I first start seeing seeing them. And then we start to talk about some stuff that is upsetting to them in their lives. And then they're saying, well, I'm on this diet and I'm starting to lose weight and I'm really starting to feel better. And maybe I'm not as depressed as I used to be. And maybe I don't even need counseling anymore. Uh, so I, I would think about that, maybe that as an example and how I would deal with that. So now that I've just talked that through for myself as far as the example goes, uh, yeah, I would ask, the very first thing I would ask is, do you have enough strength and energy to do the things that you really want to do in your life. If you're playing sports, do you have enough energy to do that? Are you able to concentrate in school if you want to excel in school or anything else that you want to do in life? Do you have enough strength and energy? And if the answer is no, I'm tired all the time, uh, we, would, we would try and find out, all right, so how are you feeding yourself? How are you caring for yourself? And that's how I would frame it at first is how is this child self-care and how can the parents be a little bit more involved in the self-care without being helicopter parents? But, but, but to be able to notice any kind of uh, distress that might even be showing up in the client uh, around food, around eating, a talk of their bodies, and, and just notice that. 
I like a lot of the DBT skills uh, to use for for this uh, because the please skill is one of the easiest ones uh, to learn, but one of the hardest ones to implement. Please being take care of physical illness, eating is an E, um, A is avoiding substances that can cause you to be overly emotional, S is sleep, and E uh, being exercise, or I like to, to call it physical activity. And so just introducing a simple DBT skill like please can go a long way with just introducing the like lack of self-care. Like we can do this. We can, we can um, take, take a Tylenol when we have a headache and that's treating physical illness and, and being able to share that information with the parents and the kids will go a long way. So I, I do tend to use quite a few uh, DBT skills uh, in in my treatment. And that would be the one I, I say, it's please because I have to beg my clients to use it. You know, <laughs> please, please use, please, please take care of yourself. <laughs> so thank you. I think that's a helpful note to remember that acronym. Um, you've mentioned how major life changes, traumatic experiences can contribute to the development of these symptoms. What are some of the commonalities that we need to be looking out for? As as you were talking about um, kind of conceptualizing a case where you're seeing somebody and then something happens and then maybe they develop symptoms, I've totally been there. <laughs> so all these cases are popping up in my mind. Um, and and then, you know, you, you then are pivoting treatment and is still focusing potentially on what the person originally came in for, but then you have this big elephant in the room that you need to be addressing and you need to be dealing with. Can you describe for listeners like what are what should be perking up our ears clinically to there might be something going on here, um, whether that's wearing baggy clothing, things like that, where they're they're the threads that you know to pull on that we might not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I think just for parents too, just to be noticing and communicating with their kids, continuously noticing changes in behavior, eating behaviors. So she used to like mac and cheese a lot and now she's not touching it. What might be going on? Uh, I'm noticing too that there is uh, increased distress, like nervousness when we're at a restaurant. Like she used to be able to order anything off the menu and not a care in the world, but now she's scanning it, looking really nervous. Um, there's there's all these behaviors that that parents and others can can look at uh, that might be uh, happening. Uh, well, we bought a loaf of bread yesterday and it's gone today. And there's only three of us in the house. And I know I didn't eat it all. What might have happened? So you want to be mindful, I would say. And it's so hard to be mindful. It's that's that's why it's a practice, not a perfect, right? You you practice mindfulness and you don't do it perfectly, but you set an intention to observe your child, observe your teen observe your own behaviors. And so that's a DBT skill, uh, as you probably know, uh, observe just simply wordless watching and non-judgmental uh, sort of, oh, I'm noticing this, the mac and cheese. And I'm wondering that um, what's making you push it away? Why didn't you take a serving of mac, mac and cheese? You usually do. What's going on? And being curious uh, about that. So you want to look at any kind of changes in behavior. You mentioned uh, baggy clothes. So yeah, there's there's that clothing thing, right? So if you do notice that your, your child or your teen uh, used to wear these pants and they fit differently, uh, you want to make sure this is a great teaching point right here that I like to give my parents that you you stay out of the web, which is any talk of W weight. Okay, so you don't want to you don't want to talk about numbers uh, typically, um, but you do want to make observations, um, and you want to notice uh, the E is going to be your eating uh, behaviors, uh, and the B is any talk of like body size and shape, right? And so that becomes really super difficult when you when you notice your teen child. And and their um, their pants are fitting differently than they used to, right? 
So I'm telling you to notice, but then what do you say and how do you say it if you're a parent? You can never go wrong with, is everything okay? How are you feeling these days? And I don't know if most parents ask that question, but to be able to communicate with your kid about their feelings and about, is everything all right, is is will go a long way. Um, just to be able to do what I call care frontation, which is a caring confrontation. And so confrontation in a caring way, if you do suspect that, because that, that is a thing. Um, care frontation could be used in the example of the bread too. You know, the bread is gone. I'm noticing I bought a loaf of bread yesterday. I'm wondering where it went. It's not here. Um, might you know anything about that? Um, and to be able to have this non-defensive sort of a communication, um, active, reflective listening, and any feelings that come up, uh, validate them. You know, I love those words. It makes sense that you feel blank, <laughs> even if you don't know that it makes sense. If even if you can't figure it out, it it does make sense. Um, it makes sense that people have feelings. People have feelings for a reason. Validate your kids' feelings. I feel like I'm I'm teaching parents here. <laughs> I I probably should shift back to the clinicians. <laughs> no, but I but I appreciate because these are the conversations that we need to be having with parents, and so I, I appreciate your perspective on this. Um, so you mentioned web of weight eating uh, and body image. Is that right? Body size, shape, body or weight. Size. Thank you. Uh, and what happens, I'm curious, unfortunately, we know that there are families where these things are discussed constantly. They're used for punishment or consequence that these things are mocked. And, and you know, I've seen the research about um, if you have a parent who is critical of their bodies, then the child is that much more likely to have low self-esteem associated with their own body image, things like that. How, how do you address that? Um, I'm guessing not with the teen in the room, <laughs> but when there is this culture that is really not conducive to recovery, it's actually conducive to the development and maintenance of disordered eating behavior. Yeah, exactly. And and I like to take a health at every size approach. And uh, that, that meaning that uh, body size, shape or weight is not uh, typically indicative of health, even though doctors say it is, there's, there's proof that that it really is not true, that it, you can't look at a person of a certain size, shape or weight and say, you're unhealthy. How do you know that you, you really don't know? It's so unhealthy. I hear that all the time. It's so unhealthy to be eating this. I'm going back to mac and cheese. I must want some. <laughs> but it's so that is so unhealthy. Um, I don't eat meat anymore. It's it's just it's not it's not healthy. It's not good for me, sort of thing. And uh, so I like to be able to take the health at every size approach and also the all foods fit approach to to where you are actually saying uh, to a person, well. You're labeling these these foods good, bad, right, or wrong, um, but actually they're food. They they are they're there. Even if it's if it's for pleasure or if it's for uh, something like I'm just thinking about gummy bears. I don't know if they have any nutritional uh, value, but but they're fun to eat. I mean, so so what is it that um, that you are demonizing or angelizing food about? And let's just try and get to that non judgmental stance. Again, another DBT sort of way of thinking of things that um, that we don't have to judge food as good, bad, right, or wrong. We can just say it's food. Uh, as you were talking earlier, I was thinking of a situation where a mother and a daughter uh, would come into the session, and the daughter had a restrictive uh, sort of uh, disordered eating, and the mother said, "Well, she doesn't need to lose weight, but I do." Uh, so, how do you address that as a clinician? Uh, and that must that could come up in in a typical session in, with a family as well. And we would just want to be curious about your, uh, the ways that you think about bodies, the ways you think that bodies should look, uh, uh, how much they should weigh, and trying to identify those shoulds 
and try and help them to develop a more flexible way of thinking, then everything must fit into this neat and tidy box. Uh, so yeah, I think that uh, being able to talk to your clients and your parents, it can happen in the same room. You, you just have to use a, a you know, Think back to, to DBT again. Um, think back to that non-judgmental stance. Um, one of the things I do is I have these People magazines. Somebody used to get a subscription to People magazine at my old uh, workplace. So I, I took a couple of them and I will have people, I'll pick out a picture in the People magazine and I'll have the, the clients just tell me what they think of that person, you know, and there's, uh, there's always judgments, right? So then we'll say, okay, that's great. So you have that. So let's try and describe it again, in terms of fact, and th it helps them grow that part of their brain that says, oh, she has five fingers, her nails are protruding above her, uh, her, her, instead of saying she has long nails, she, they're protruding about an inch above the top of her finger. She has brown hair. She has a smile on her face, that kind of thing. Instead of like, uh, she's, or he's creepy, or she's beautiful, that type of thing. So those things can be used. Uh, yeah, with the parents in the room, I'm all for doing that. Thank you. That was helpful of just a, a intervention to kind of keep in mind in our back pockets. So when, so you're, let's say a parent has contacted you because they're concerned about their child and you do an assessment and determine that this client, because of the severity, is not appropriate for outpatient care. Tell us about the treatment options available. If you go through the levels of care and briefly describe those for our listeners who aren't familiar with them, um, even if we're not treating at that level of care personally, I think it's helpful helpful for us to know. Here's a framework then that I'd be referring into and what that looks like. So let's start with the top down of this is really severe. This person looks like they can't stand up because they, uh, you know, they're they're getting lightheaded. Tell me what you do. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, and that, that has happened to me a couple of times as I'm doing the assessment, the person had to lay down because they were going to indeed um, pass out. And, um, and then we have to call the ambulance. Um, sometimes that, that happens. Um, and so, yes, inpatient care is going to be the very top level of, uh, you know, so your electrolytes are out of balance, so out of balance that you can't stand up without passing out, or your blood sugar is really super low. I always keep food in my office, by the way, uh, just in case that happens. Uh, juice is really good. Those little boxes of apple juice or applesauce, really good to keep in your office. And they're usually no questions of how quickly they work. It, it, they, they usually will, will, will be fine about drinking some apple juice. So yes, uh, hospitalization. Uh, so that might require um, IV fluids to be administered, medications to be administered. Uh, so that hospitalization, typically when they're medically stable, so their vitals are good and their um, all of their labs come back fine, then they may uh, go to any of the other lower levels of care, depending on how they're how they're assessed. Um, it may have just been a bad day, or it may be an eating disorder. So uh, you do want to make sure that you um, you look at that level of care. If, if there's medical uh, necessity, they, they need to be hospitalized. So when looking at the a hospitalization inpatient level of care, obviously, this depends on what state you're in. But is there such a thing as involuntary inpatient care for eating disorders or suspected eating disorders? Or like, I guess, when, how do you divide it between a psychiatric hospitalization where it may be um, a, a whole process to hospitalize versus a medical hospitalization? And how does that get split? I'm curious, like, are you ever surprised when you call an ambulance and then the person ends up in a psychiatric hospital or a psychiatric, a psychiatric unit or department versus you thinking they were going to go to the emergency room? 
Yeah, no, and and unfortunately that happens. The the hospitals around here I can speak to because there's a general hospital and then there's the Seattle Children's Hospital that you go to that has an eating disorders unit in it. So some hospitals might have an eating disorder unit in it. If you go to the typical hospital ER, then what they're going to do is they're going to try and get you medically stable, get your fluids uh, and your uh, electrolytes balanced, get your blood sugar good, and get you ready to go, and then they may not do a psychiatric assessment. They may just say, okay, go home and follow up with your primary care provider if you have an outpatient therapist. So if you're an outpatient therapist and then you get them back in your office the next week after they've had this uh, medical adventure, then you would definitely want to ask more questions about like, how often is this a problem? And are you feeling dizzy quite a bit? Do we need to have you go to uh, somebody a couple times a week? You know, doctor's offices will will allow this uh, to be able to go and manage weight vitals um, and just just go into the office, see the nurse or the PA or whoever is, is there and, and just make sure that you're okay. Do we need to do that? Or do we need to look at possibly exploring uh, a residential treatment center for you. But yeah, so to answer your question, no, that psychiatric analysis isn't always done. I would say probably almost never is done. And then they're just released back to their outpatient provider. And then you go, okay, now what? Um, So we have the inpatient, will you go to the next level of care then and talk about residential and what that is? Yeah. And and so if this patient um, comes back into my office and we talk about the medical adventure and all the other things that they're happening in their life and, and how their behaviors are, how their emotions are, if it's really severe and affecting a lot of their life domains, I will recommend a residential treatment center. So that is a place where you go and everything's all under one roof. So you've got a dietitian, you've got a therapist, you've got group therapy, you've got other people living with you. You've got a medical doctor coming in, a psychiatrist coming in to help, and you're being fed. So, and that's, that's the contained environment that you're going to be in uh, so that you can learn how to feed yourself. And they're going to teach you, they're going to provide you with the emotional support you need. They're going to provide you with skills and they're going to provide you with food and limited access to bathrooms. So they will keep the bathrooms locked up and or if you need to use the restrooms, they will be nearby. Some facilities have you sing while you are using the restrooms so that they will know that you're not doing purging behaviors. And those facilities are, they can vary from sort of a hospital-like setting to some of them are in really nice big houses. I know we have a couple of them here in Seattle like that. And and yeah, there's the residential process usually takes a, a, at least 28 days to be able to get. Um, they're looking to r- restore uh, any kind of weight. They're normalizing the eating behaviors, you know, so that's the purpose of the locked restrooms and the feedings that they have. So they, they dish up your food. And, uh, and then also the, the emotions hopefully will, will be a little bit better too. If we're talking about uh, severely restrictive eating, there could be uh, damage to the brain because of, uh, funnily enough, uh, the brain is not considered an essential organ. So that's, um, so uh, patterns of thinking will uh, stop uh, when there is um malnutrition involved. So then you start to think a little bit clearly and and the mental functions are restored uh, in the residential setting. So a lot of restorative processes happen in the residential treatment facility and people learn how to take care of themselves. This is this is the way we typically take care of ourselves. We get up, we have an activity, we eat our breakfast, we have a snack, we have our lunch, and people start to realize that they can take care of themselves. It's a really important level of care if it's if it's needed. Thank you. Um, I've worked in residential treatment and and worked at that level of care for a number of years, not with an eating disorder specialization. And it was interesting to me to interact with colleagues who were working at facilities that specifically treated um, those symptoms and those behaviors, because there were these considerations that I knew nothing about, like their access to Splenda 
for example, like to packets of Splenda. That was one that I knew nothing about. Um, and so for people listening, it is important that that these people end up in specialized treatment centers um, because there may be the one size fits all treatment center that says, oh, yes, we can do that. And that doesn't mean that they actually can, because I worked at those kind of treatment centers and I knew nothing about Splenda packets. So those kind of considerations are the things that these specialists are familiar with to controlling environments, just like Tracy just said about having them sing when they go to the bathroom. If it's a one size fits all standard um, residential treatment center for mental health, it may not be equipped to appropriately help that person recover. Um, do you have any notes on what I just said, Tracy? <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so then, yeah, so substance abuse is is interesting. So, so if there's a substance abuse issue, and they, they, they send them to a substance abuse treatment program, they're not going to be looking typically at the, the eating problems. But it is interesting how eating problems will show up after the substances go away. Um, hence the Splenda packets, right? And uh, other things too. Um, ketchup, mustard, all that other stuff. But uh, yeah, so so you might see that stuff uh, and it could be completely missed. Oh, um, they won't even really bother to think it's a big deal if the client starts to um, show signs of an eating behavior. They're just concerned about the chemical dependency piece of it. So, so yeah, I've had clients go to a substance abuse treatment center, an eating, disor an eating disorder will, will emerge after the substances are out of their system, and then had to go to a different center to be treated for an eating disorder. Uh, it's not uncommon at all. There are residential treatment centers that can do both. Um, I've encountered them. But if you're helping, this is, and Tracy will probably chime in on this as well, or at least nod. Um, I had the experience at the residential and outpatient um, or PHP, which I'm sure you'll get to, but to partial hospitalization care that um, a therapist might refer somebody to us, but there wasn't that warm transfer. It's really important to aid clients that if you're transferring up or assisting to be there as a resource for the family and to the patient, um, not by direct contact necessarily, but records that you can release, things like that to help vet these treatment centers, to make sure that they're a good fit, to help the family understand their insurance, all of those things. Yes, they're outside the standard purview of quote unquote therapy, um, but they're really important to continuity of care. So there's just a little plug about that point. Uh, but Tracy, why don't you tell us about partial hospitalization and what that is? Yeah, so partial hospitalization isn't what it sounds like. It's almost kind of like, oh, we'll put you in a hospital for part of the day. No, that's not what it is. Uh, what it is is you're frequently uh, going, you're going for long periods of time to a hospital-like setting or a place where it is a contained environment where you will be eating, uh, you, you'll be eating most of your meals there. So I think the typical PHP program is going to be five or six, sometimes they go seven days a week uh, from say 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. So you're in there for a large chunk of time, but you're going home at night. So that hence the partial, right? So you're in the hospital part of the time of the day, but it's not really a hospital. It is a setting where they have medical treatment available if you need it. And they also have the food that uh, your, your kiddo is going to be eating or you are going to be eating, your client is going to be eating. Uh, so then you learn to go home at night and you learn that you, you know, so it's trying to create a soft landing from, from the hospital setting to home. So your home, probably less than you are in the hospital, uh, but you are still at home. So you're transitioning between. Some facilities have um, campuses where they have offsite lodging where you could go to a partial hospitalization. Uh, so you go to PHP during the day and then you go home to the lodging, you know, across the street or wherever at night. Uh, so you don't go to your, your home, but you go to uh, an environment that is not the hospital. Does that make sense? That makes sense to me. So yeah, the easiest way to think about partial hospitalization is day treatment, uh, as you said. And then once we are stepping down from partial hospitalization, what comes after that? 
Yeah. So then this is where you would, and this is what I recommend. If you're stepping down from partial hospitalization, you're going to be going into uh, intensive outpatient therapy, uh, which is still quite a bit of time in the, uh, in the facility. Uh, but you're also uh, being able to see if you want to, you could see your outpatient therapist. Uh, you can be in an IOP program. I've got several clients um, that I've worked with through the years who have, they are stepping down to IOP. Um, so, so they're in a program. They're going every day or maybe uh, every other day uh, to uh, an intensive program where they're working on the emotions, they're working on skills building, they're working on a soft landing so that you can be at your own place and just possibly just go back to outpatient treatment. They're working on getting you back home and uh, functional uh, again. And so less time spent at a facility doing group work or individual therapy or whatever you're doing. Uh, and then um, the rest of the time you're at home managing your your behaviors and your emotions using the skills that you're learning in the program. Uh, and that's why I'm saying uh, that what I, what I typically recommend is to keep that option open for them to also be seeing you at that time. And it's a good way for you to check in to say, well, what are you learning in the program? And how can I help you get a little bit more clear on some of the skills that they're teaching you in the program? Uh, I, I just really like offering that to my clients who are in IOP. It's like, you know, you can come back and see me. Uh, just because you're an IOP doesn't mean that you have to be a stranger, but I'm not going to make you come back. But if you want to, the door's open. Um, I just think that's a really nice touch that therapists uh, can offer their clients. Thank you. I appreciate that note. And my experience too, is that sometimes programs are okay with that and sometimes they're not. And so it's important for you as a practitioner to have that, that signed release, ideally, so that you can have that conversation to see how you could, let's say you're working with a family, for example, while the child is in treatment during the day, there are things that you could be supporting to do that real wraparound that I think can really facilitate recovery. Um, We've covered a lot of information in this hour, and there's still so much more that we can say. For parents or caregivers who are wanting to support a child in treatment, an adolescent, what's your primary advice? What does that look like? Because at the point that you have an adolescent that's going into a hospitalization or a residential treatment center, things have gotten pretty tense at home, <laughs> generally. So how, how do you kind of coach parents on what to expect and, and what they can do to facilitate their child's recovery? That's interesting you say that. And I don't know that I mentioned it to you earlier uh, that I do parent coaching. I do actually offer that as a part of my uh, my business. And I love doing it too, because it doesn't take very much. They're kind of like plants that you, you know, that are kind of drooping and they need a little water and enthusiasm and, and a little um, lesson in their own self-care. And I do offer that to, to parents because they can get really worn out their own resources can be depleted by this. Uh, it's often just very draining emotionally, uh, just wondering what's going to happen to their teenager. Uh, I have uh, also developed a class that uh, I've designed for parents uh, specifically with teenagers who are struggling with the disordered eating, eating disorders. And if they want to learn more uh, to develop a recovery plan uh, to get resources, uh, I, I like to be able to give parents uh, encouragement and and, uh, and resources and skills uh, to be able to help their their child through a, a really difficult time. And uh, just to be able to, to be there to answer any questions. I'm one of those therapists that don't ignore phone calls and it does take up a lot of time, but I do answer every email and every phone call. I do get around to it. Uh, so if anybody has any questions at all, um, feel free. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, for parents, I would have to say again, um, the most, the, the, the most important thing you can do for your kid is to validate their emotions and to help and to be able to openly communicate with them uh, about sharing their feelings. Keep that line of communication open and, um, and you're not alone. There's plenty of people out there that you can talk to that will help you through this. Um, <laughs> I know I'm one of them, but I have a lot of colleagues as well who are just as passionate as, as, as I am about seeing teens recover from eating disorders. 
Thank you so much, Tracy. So you had mentioned IADEP, but can you speak a little bit more about what that is and also provide our listeners with any other resources? If they're listening to this, they probably have these clients or they're wondering what happens when they get these clients. So what direction would you give them? Yeah, the International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals is a international international organization that helps therapists learn more about eating disorders. So they put on symposiums, they put on their local chapters, uh, will put on educational events, and they'll have uh, guest speakers on certain topics. And our local chapter, I'm the treasurer of that chapter, we're going to be having Anita Johnston at our next event. So she's a pretty big name. And we were able to get somebody doing law and ethics trainings about eating disorders. We were able to get uh, some people from Be Nourished uh, to talk about health at every size. We were um, able to get Matt Goldenberg, uh, who talked about the um, LGBTQIA community and eating disorders and the overlap there. So, your local chapter of IADEP, wherever state you live in, there's probably a chapter. And so the uh, it's www.iaedp.com. Uh, there is a tab there that you can find your local chapter of IADEP if you want to do an educational event. And uh, as far as other resources, uh, I do have quite uh, an assortment of resources uh, on my website. It is uh, my business name is Lokahi Counseling. It's L O K A H I Counseling. So the website is www.lokahicounseling.com and click on the resources tab, scroll down to the bottom quarter of the page, and there is an extensive list of resources for eating disorders. Uh, so we've got free support groups that are offered by the Center for Discovery. There's Alsana. There's a couple for COVID-19. And by the way, just seeing a lot of resurgence of eating disorders and disordered eating behaviors due to the pandemic. That's on Instagram. And there's a lot of self-help stuff that I've put out there and some podcasts and some of the websites here, like the feast, F-E-A-S-T, uh, org and the Ellen Satter Institute. There's just all kinds of resources that I've taken the time to build up and put on my website for people who struggle with uh, eating disorders or disordered eating behaviors. Awesome. Thank you. So again, for our listeners, a primary resource for you is IADEP. And then also you can feel free to check out Tracy's website where she's uh, made them easy for you to access. And you also might want to check out uh, if you're on social media um, or Reddit, like following threads of clinicians or groups that are specifically about working with teens with eating disorders. Um, Tracy, thank you so much. We've covered so much during this hour. It's been really helpful for me. There's obviously so much more that could be said about this, but I think this was a helpful framework for clinicians that are not eating disorder specialists, but maybe working with these clients of what do we do and how do we conceptualize what's going on here? Yes, exactly. And yeah, please don't be afraid to work with them. They're great people and they're just using food and eating to cope with some pretty severe emotions at times. And so uh, it's really super rewarding work, I would say. Wonderful. Thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Good to be here. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.